International Teacher Magazine, in collaboration with Honey to Your Ears, presents Talking About the ITM Podcast with your host, Andy Hamden. Librarians are perhaps the unsung heroes of international education. They always have a foot in more than one camp, playing both teaching and support roles. Storytellers and administrators, they will lead curriculum and community initiatives and often manage a wide range of resources outside the library for the school. My guests today are two people who know the world of the International School Library extremely well. Rob George is the head of libraries at the Alice Smith School in Kuala Lumpur, and Sally Flint was also head of libraries at Bangkok Patton School before returning to the UK in 2020. Sal and Rob, welcome to the ITM podcast. I'd like to start by asking you both how you became librarians at international schools, because when you entered the world of international education, neither of you were librarians, in fact. Sal, start us off. How did you become a librarian? Hi there, Andy. Yeah, you're right. I um, had never any sort of intention of becoming a librarian for a long time, but we was in this brilliant school, which I absolutely adored, but I just could not get over that the library was so small and under-resourced. And it, it was my, like, kind of niggle for years and years. Um, and it was such a quiet place. You know, kids didn't go there much, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, so then when, when the job came up for a librarian, I thought I would absolutely love that. Um, but as you say, I was teaching English, um, IB, IGCSE, and I thought, real, what qualifications have I got really? So I had to go to my primary principal, because of course it was pr- across the whole school. I had no experience of primary. And the head teacher and tell them, tell them I was a good bet. Uh, so I think I landed the role just by, just by being so passionate and enthusiastic about reading and books. And they thought, well, let's, let's give her a chance. Uh, there was three new libraries about to be built. Uh, and I think they wanted someone to come in and, um, you know, kind of with a, perhaps with a different perspective. Not that I hadn't got the absolute utmost perspective you know, respect for who was there before. They they were really, really strong. Um, but I, I, I got lucky in that it was a time of, you know, change and, and they gave me a try. So there was an opportunity, you saw that, you felt the need and you just went for it. Yeah. It's I a great story. Back. <laughs> Rob, what about yourself? Well, I'm, a, I'm an unlikely candidate in some ways as somebody who's a, an ex-physics teacher. But there were other elements. I mean, at the time, I was uh, vice principal for student welfare, again, at the Alice Smith School in KL. And the honest truth is, is I was allowing myself to become hyper-stressed with workload. And because of that, I decided to realign my position in education just for my own well-being, Andy. I considered retraining as either a a school counsellor, a careers advisor, or a school librarian. In my own analysis, the librarian direction had the most plus points, and thus, here I am, 21 years later, still a teacher librarian. So you stopped work, didn't you, Rob, and and went off to train? I took time out, and I felt that was the best thing for me. Like I was saying, I was in a stressed time in my life, and I felt that if I'd have gone back into the classroom and tried to get the qualification part-time, I don't know whether I'd have got there, and I don't, and I don't know whether I, I certainly think I wouldn't have enjoyed it. So I, I'm, I'm very happy I took time out. I treated it to a large extent as, as educational tourism. I'm from the UK, but I chose to follow the uh, Masters in Library and Information at Victoria University, Wellington in New Zealand. You just 
took off and did that training, that master's three year, you came back and then you started uh, in librarianship. That's right, Andy, yes. Fantastic. And wow. Sal, I mean, it sounds like a big job that you had coming up because you've got those three libraries on the go and, and, and needing all your attention. What about the training for you? Did the school support you yeah. in getting some training? Yeah, they did. I was just thinking of Rob there suddenly doing a master's in librarianship because um, I was lucky that once I'd got the position, the school helped me uh, finance uh, a diploma in information management from Robert Gordon University. I was also mid-English master's at that time because I think I was like looking for a change and a bit of excitement. <laughs> and honestly, I was like, oh my word, I had no idea that cataloging books was so complicated. <laughs> it's not all about reading and fun, is it? You know. So the technical side you really had to deal with as well. Yeah, the, that was, um, like, you know, the, I always say that the proper librarian work was, yeah. was difficult. Um, not easy. And, it, but it sounds as though, Rob, you were saying that once you retrained and got back into it, it was the job you expected to be. And you really just started to see the benefits and enjoying it. For sure, Andy. I mean, I would have to say that it, re- it really has provided me with the, the work joy that I was hoping for. And there, there are so many facets to it. But if I can just mention two, it keeps me in touch with so many students. And, I, and in, in, a, in a beautiful way, in the sense that I'm interacting with people who are just working independently in the library, and I can just walk past, sit down, have a chat to them about what they're doing and talk about their work. And it's just an absolute pleasure. I mean, I would have never guessed, because when I started the idea of being a librarian, it didn't occur to me that I might be asked to be a research supervisor. But for me, supervising the EPQ and Year 9 research projects, you know, it's very much the aspect of my work that I love most. I guess it's a much busier job than I anticipated. There are more things to prioritize and decide if they are an effective use of my time or not. How many ECAs should we offer? Is it a good use of my time when I've got so many other things? How much should I be engaging with the PTA book club, offering professional learning opportunities for staff? You see what I mean? There's, there's so many things that could be there. So you had to prioritize, but it was nice prioritization. It was really great stuff. And, and it brought you into the community in a way that you'd never been before. Sal, what about yourself? I mean, there you are, these three new libraries open. Was it overwhelming or was it fun or, or how was it? I think it was both of those things. I mean, it was what I expected in that I, I was like, this is going to be so great. I can go around the whole school, champion books, champion my love of reading and all the rest of it. But kind of when it comes down to the nitty gritties of right, what kind of shelving are we going to order for this space? And how can we kind of mishmash the quiet areas and the, the fun zones? There was, there was a lot more to it than, than I had any insight into. And how did you find getting involved in the primary school, the elementary school? Absolutely loved it. Do you know what, what Rob's saying about um, being with the students? That, for me, was just a joy. I mean, the first year I was so reliant on the primary teachers to help me manage the kids, all these small children suddenly wanted to climb up on knee and things. <laughs> that was a whole different ball game. But it was it was just a joy, you know, to, to sit and read with the kids. And then you see them go through the school and... I remember one time I was at a, a play in the secondary school and this 13-year-old boy came running up to me, Miss Sal, Miss Sal, and kind of put his arms around me. I was like, whoa. And because he'd last seen me in the primary library, 
Yeah. So those connections and bridging the gap makes the job so much easier, really, in getting secondary students reading because they know you and they're, they're open to your, your fun ideas and that kind of thing. So a library is at the very heart of the school then. It's at the centre. And people were coming to you. You were going to them. It was uh, a new challenge but an enjoyable one. Rob, when you talk to your, your colleagues who are librarians in schools around the world, how is librarianship in schools changing, do you think? What sort of challenges are they facing as, as they take this forward? I think that's a tough and complex question. Yeah. It was more or less exactly what you were saying, which is in my mind, Andy, is that a school library reflects the nature and culture of the school. And I imagine, I don't know, Andy, I, I see that the overall nature of international schools is changing. More international schools are now not really about supporting the expatriate community, perhaps the majority now, are more about local parents choosing an international curriculum over their national curriculum. And many of those, the schools in that, particularly in that category, have much lower fees than the premium expat attracting international schools. And with the knock-on effect being that their libraries have much more modest budgets, and therefore those international schools have to react to that. Uh, I mean, thus the international schools in Malaysia, we see a huge range of library facilities, really from the haves, I'm lucky enough to be in one of those schools who I count as the haves, to the have-nots who are surviving with very little budget. And how do they get by? What, what sort of initiatives do they have to take? I've not really spent enough time in their schools to give a really detailed answer to that. But when I hear librarians from those schools at the sort of like our network meetings, they are just being creative and finding resources and materials that are free to access. And I suppose there is an element where the modern world does actually benefit in that way, because if you're creative, there are a lot of good information sources out there which are free of charge. And I think speaking to you both in the past, Sal, perhaps you could pick this up. Networking is an extremely important part of a librarian's life for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, Rob's alluded to uh, schools which need to have the help and advice of their colleagues. Did you find that when you were at Patina? Yeah, I found it so helpful. Um, just in so many ways, you know, you want a particular book recommendation of something, you know, a student's interested in. Or I would often go to other schools and just kind of walk around the, with the librarian there and try and sort of give them some help, to be honest. And not that I'm putting myself forward as an expert in any kind of way, but, you know, um, kind of have you thought about this, this and this when, when they were setting up library spaces, particularly when they were short of budget. So, yeah, networking is crucial, I think, and, and like all for visits, you know, and sharing if we were, let's think, say we were doing a Roald Dahl kind of um, feature in year three or year four, just to share all the resources that you make. You know, it's just, I think the community of a library is far beyond just the school. I think when I first took the role, I thought it was just the kids, to be honest. And then suddenly you think, actually, no, it's not. It's the teachers um, with your professional development collection and the parents, the housekeepers, you know, trying to get them involved in things like World Book Days, dressing up and just championing it to absolutely everyone. So libraries can really bring people together whose paths might not normally cross. That's the impression I'm getting. 
And what other ways do you think, Rob, a library is changing? Uh, I remember being told, oh, there won't be any books in the future. Libraries won't have books. It'll all be IT. It'll all be digital. How are libraries changing and how are they staying the same? You've sort of anticipated a lot in what you've said there, Andy, and in the sense that I sort of agree, but I can unpack that. There will continue, particularly in fiction, there will continue to be a, pl- be a place for the, for the hard copy collection. But, and certainly for me as a librarian, we, we redeveloped our library in 2017, 2018. And the conscious decision there, and I think it just shows what our thinking was, is that we would maintain the size of the hard copy collection for fiction, but we would reduce the size of the non-fiction collection that we had already in terms of collection number by 30%. And that's the way we step forward. And it still feels at this stage, six years on from then, that that was a sensible decision. But the thing which has changed again, as you alluded to, is the electronic collection. And the electronic collection is a massive part of our business now. And I've, I've spoken on, on other occasions about subscriptions and how subscription models change the way schools access information, change the way students access information. But it doesn't come without a cost. I mean, we're a lucky school. We've, we've got a good budget. But even we've maintained our hard copy spending but whereas 12 years ago, there would have been virtually zero spending on electronic resources, now spending on electronic resources in the secondary school is nearly double the amount that we spend on hard copy resources. So that's changing and that's got to be managed. Sal, you seem to be agreeing with that. Was that a trend you were seeing uh, the same kind of way at uh, Patana? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was thinking the digital landscape must be changing so much now. And, you know, AI is at the tip of everyone's tongue when, when looking at how things are moving forward. But I was thinking to myself, well, if we've, if we can get AI to do all the cataloging really quickly for us and the chatbots to answer people's questions in the middle of the night, we can just have even more fiction on the shelves. <laughs> I think the thing I, I feel about libraries is, of course, it's about reading. It's about books. Of course it is, but it's a community and it's a hub and it's a safe space and, that's not actually really going to change, hopefully. So people gravitate towards libraries, don't they? They, they enjoy being there. And if the atmosphere is right, then they'll stay and they'll spread the word. Rob, did you see that with the, with the secondary students that came into the library? When we redeveloped, we, we tried very much to have as many different types of environments in the library as possible. We've got a couple of zones which are effectively living room at library. One is our graphic novels corner. The other is a much larger space that's used by key stage three classes when they come in. We don't only have that. We have study booths and we have collaboration rooms, which are closed door, glass fronted rooms. Having all of those different options available has certainly, I think, I think it's excited the students. They come in and they actually have an opportunity to think, what space do I need for what I'm about to do? So they enjoy coming to the physical spaces, but the accessibility is more about physical spaces now, isn't it? It's about accessing collections, well, pretty much 24-7 if, they're, uh, if they want to. Is, is that a trend you see? I think a huge challenge for librarians is we need to be very sophisticated in terms of how we develop things like our website to actually maximize access to resources. And over the last five years, I'm now in a second 
rebuild of my website because I thought I was building a good website the first time around. But when I reflected on it, it was so complicated that it was too difficult to keep up to date. And now I've stripped back and produced a much more simple website. And that has proved itself successful because we're getting a much more successful, you know, statistics on hit rate and use. You can follow that in the analytics and so on. Sal, do you think uh, modern libraries are helping kids to become more independent in their learning and, and more confident? I think so. I, um, or I certainly think there's there's lots of opportunity that they they could be. Uh, but that's where the, the people are still so so important. So the resources are there, whatever level. But the like Rob was saying earlier, chatting to a librarian and having that connection really has has to help. Again, I'm, I keep thinking of AI, and we spent so long counting almost manually. I guess there was some kind of technical thing there, but what, how many books year 10 borrowed and what kind of books they were and how to promote reading. And I just feel that, well, that could be done in a, a second now, presumably. I mean, Rob would be able to say by the, the click of a button. What about the, those analytics then, Rob? Do, do you find them getting easier? I think it is interesting to to track what's being used and what's not. But I think if I can slightly digress from exactly what you asked me, because you asked about students researching independently. And I think that's one of the areas where the library being the hub for information fluency is that schools have got a huge responsibility. And certainly they've got a huge responsibility if they want to deliver fully information fluent young people. because. If we just tell the students to go off and research, they're just going to Google. And yes, too many of them are only going to follow the top few hits that they get on Google. And that's where we need to have the whole community. And I mean, in every classroom all of the time. And students are working independently much more in the classroom. But we really, and I'm not sure that we do a good enough job, but we really need the staff all singing from the same song sheet. In other words, it's not a boring message, but the way that they're nudging people to actually think about their accessing information is just so important. Such an important lifelong learning skill. And this is where I come back in. Yes. How do you cater to students who do have different learning needs and perhaps even different kinds of physical impairments, for example, in terms of helping them to access materials, whether they're hearing impaired or visually impaired? We as a school, we sort of limit the disabilities that we have in the environment. Those people who've got traditional learning difficulties like Asperger's and the students who are on the spectrum, we as a school support that very, very strongly. And we would work with what we call now personalized learning faculty. And they ask us to maintain resources. They ask us to tag things up for them on on reading lists. And those are not lists that we're expecting the students to use. That's those people who are working with those individual students, know how to access it and to nudge them into the right resources. In terms of the physical, Jason, we don't really cater for that in in any large way. So what was it like at Patna? It's a really good question because it immediately made me thinking, were we doing this well enough? What I would say is we work very closely with the students in questions, mentors or personal support to make sure that we've got 
what they they were the experts what what they needed in in that respect in terms of physical access um because we had a few students who would need wheelchairs to to get around the school and there's always you know particularly during football season or whatever there was always <laughs> kids in pots with pots on their legs um it was just the team the team would be again you know the children uh the team would help them into the lift and and so on but i think it's something that definitely needs paying attention to we catered to pretty much everyone it's such an insightful question because now i'm thinking well actually did we do that well enough so i guess really always being open-minded and wanting to learn more about what is required asking the students themselves is what i would say it's just kind of part of the big picture some something else to make sure that we're investigating properly and and using the advice that the experts give us do your respective schools also have audiobooks available oh yeah oh yeah okay <laughs> we've got a strong collection of both ebooks and audiobooks yeah awesome that's great it's one of the other things that i do in my business in my wheelhouse i'm curious how schools are moving along with the technology as it becomes I think audiobooks seem to have had a real resurgence. Um, you know, I mean, I, I play them all the time. Just when you, you're multitasking, I guess you can, you can be doing one thing and listening to, to your story at the same time. Albeit that it, the old fashioned newspapers and magazines could be seen to be reaching the end of their life. I'm, my feeling is that there's still a very strong place for them. And we subscribe to Press Reader, which is one of the consolidators for electronically provided newspapers and magazines. And I actually think it's one of the most good value for money subscriptions we have. It's the one where we get the highest hit rate. I would say it's not cheap. I mean, we spend about 3,200 US dollars a year whole school. But if you looked at it in terms of how much it's used, I would say it's definitely our best value subscription overall. And in terms of accessibility, although it does sound a little bit computerish, but if you download a newspaper or a magazine, there's a function in PressReader where it will actually read the articles to you. Yeah, I think, I think in that kind of thing, it's just so important. Another part of being a librarian is just marketing your, your wares, you know, so <laughs> constantly out there touting for business using, using whatever tools are available to reach the community. Appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. So we come back to the idea of libraries leading initiatives, seeing things in a wide perspective, seeing what's going on in different parts of the school and saying, you know what, if we act together, we can actually lead the way that these kids develop towards more independence. Would you say that's right, Sal? Yeah, definitely. Sort of teaching, learning how to learn is just crucial and key at all levels. And I, I kind of see that as one major prong of a, a librarian to help with that. And then the other side is just not losing that absolute passion for stories and storytelling and making them, you know, go hand in hand and finding time for both and getting the whole school on side with both. So that's, that's the challenge, but that's also what makes it so fun. So a many and varied sort of job spec for both of you and for all modern librarians. It sounds like you've never looked back, both of you. You made that decision, you went in, you took it on, and it's just been fun in many ways, but also hard work. Finally, just to wrap us up, Sal, if you were to give a, a piece of advice to anyone starting on that journey now in 2023, what might it be? 
prioritize the people, I think. Build those connections across the classroom with the librarians, across the whole, the whole community. And, uh, just aim to be a breath of fresh air. Don't worry too much about the rules and the shushing. Uh, people are first and books, books would be pretty close on their heels, I guess is what I'd say. People first yeah. for the books. Like that. That's interesting. And Rob? One which is a tough one that I would have never anticipated is that students on campus after school are going to be a bigger part of your planning than you would ever imagine. Because at that time, when lots of people are in ECAs, remember, they've got siblings who need to be on the same transport. And therefore, surprise, surprise, there are 70 or 80 or 90 or more kids needing somewhere to go. And in the modern world of safeguarding, you know, in the past, and I don't mean this in an irresponsible way, but in the past, we wouldn't have worried too much about students being around the campus and actually, you know, doing what they will. But now safeguarding says you have to know where everyone is all the time, have to be accountable. And therefore, guess what? Of course, they get swept into the library. And the school librarian... The after-school zone is one I will point out to new people and expect the unexpected because libraries are in partnership with so many aspects of the school and changes elsewhere are constantly changing your own reality. So don't think that you're going to be able to step in and do it your way. You have to follow the school, work with the school. So again, working with the school at the hub of what is going on in the school, whether it's during school hours or after school hours, or online. Sally Flint, Rob George, thank you very much for your time and being part of the ITM podcast. Thank you. Pleasure, Andy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talking About the ITM Podcast, a Honey to Your Ears production. Copyright 2023. Produced by Jason Lasky. For more information about contributing to International Teacher Magazine, please visit conciliumeducation.com. For the sweetest sound production experience, honeytoyourears.com.